Thank you, Pastor Jared. I trust that everybody had a great full first kind of real full day here at uh, Family Camp 5 at Iowa Regular Baptist Camp. I know that we have enjoyed the day and have enjoyed starting to get to know you. We'd love to, to do more of that. I don't want to be, just be that guy that shows up at the 7 o'clock hour and preaches and goes and hides in his room. I don't do that. So love to have opportunities. I think we're going to go over to a, a fire tonight after the service and more things like that, we would enjoy getting to know you a little bit better through the week, and we're available if we can be a, of encouragement and a blessing to you and just uh, be able to spend some time together getting to know one another. That would be fantastic. I, I'm going to share a little bit more about myself progressively each night. I introduced you to my, my family yesterday, and I'm going to share a little bit of my, my salvation testimony as well tonight because... You know, there have been times where I've been the person sitting down there, either to camp or at a conference, and it's kind of nice, especially if you have a speaker that's going to be speaking multiple times, you kind of have a little bit of an idea of their background, where they come from, all that kind of stuff. And so the very first thing I'm going to say, I hope you'll still listen to me despite what I'm about to say, okay? I was born... I recognize the voice, that was Steve Pickray. Am I right? Yep, yep. yep. Thanks. All I said is I was born. And Steve, I was born in Nebraska. All right. I know I'm not in the very friendly crowd here. All right. But uh, I was, part of, why, part of why I share this testimony too is obviously I want to share my salvation testimony. But, you know, one of the things I get asked as the president of a mission agency and a former pastor for 26 years is, you know, was your dad a pastor? And, and the reality of the matter is I was born into an unsafe family. Um, we uh, were, I was born and raised in a little, little outside of a couple of little rural towns, northeastern Nebraska. Back, remember back in the day when your address was rural route, whatever? Yeah, that's what, that we were rural route three, West Point, Nebraska. The neighbors knew where we lived and the mail carrier knew where we lived. That's all that mattered. The rest of you couldn't have found our place, okay? About 15 miles down the gravel road, about 15 miles from the closest town of at least a little bit of size, a couple thousand people, something like that, and uh, born into a, a family that did not know Christ. Uh, my mom and dad married when my dad was 19, my mom was 17, actually they married when they were 18 and 16, and my older sister came along when they were 19 and 17, my mom dropped out of high school to be a mom, and uh, so they got married not, not knowing the Lord, and uh, having lived like most, a lot of people did in, in that time as well as a lot of people are living today. And so as time and as the Lord would have it, uh, the gospel was introduced to our family uh, through one lady. It was one lady that, that simply invited my mom to a Bible study, to a lady's Bible study. By that time, uh, this was nine years after I was born, so I was nine years old. By that time, my mom was kind of at a place in life where she was really searching and struggling and just didn't know what was really missing in her life even though she had Lutheranism in her background and had a little bit of the Bible in, in her background, she didn't know Christ as her Savior. And my dad was a complete rejecter of all things God, all things eternal, uh, anything to do with the church. He grew up with a ranting and raving father that just uh, made all kinds of comments about Christians are all hypocrites and all kinds of other things like that. And so the gospel came to our home through this lady's Bible study. My mom accepted Christ as her personal Savior uh, when I was nine years old. And you can imagine 
You know, you remember when you first got saved, especially if you got saved as an adult, the enthusiasm and the excitement of that. And so my mom became, and she has ever since then, she became the family evangelist. And she's just always kind of been the family evangelist. Just this last week, she led a child to Christ that is the child of somebody she babysat 30 years ago. Okay, that's just kind of how mom, mom rolls. And uh, um, so she then became the family evangelist as a result of her taking us to revival kind of meetings, kind of almost like, a, almost like a Billy Graham crusade type of meeting. It wasn't Billy Graham, but through that, as a nine-year-old, I heard the gospel and I responded uh, to the gospel of Christ. And as a result of that, my sisters eventually uh, made professions of faith. And it was, it was when I was 14 that my dad trusted Christ. I embraced the gospel at nine but I saw the power of the gospel at 14. I saw what it did in my daddy's heart. My, my dad was six, six and a half, 300 pounds, um, worked at a meat packing plant. And if you know anything about that industry or that way of life, at least back then, now it's mostly immigrants that work there, but those were like the roughest guys on planet earth. Most crude and rude and crass and all those things. And dad wasn't always all of those things, but some of the time, a lot of the time, he was those kinds of things. And, and so when he came to know the Lord, with all the habits that go along with being lost, God began to change his life. And I remember as a teenage boy just going, what in the world? This is amazing. This is incredible. This is awesome. And it was the gospel of Christ that changed my dad's life. And part of why I get emotional is because he went to be with the Lord this last October. And I got to preach this funeral and share that same gospel, that glorious gospel that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins to save a wretch like me so that I could have eternal life if I will repent of my sins and place my faith in Jesus Christ. And so I'm so thankful today. And really, I look back at that and go, you know, everybody presumes if you're a preacher, your dad was a preacher. You were raised in a Christian home and all those things. That was kind of raised in a Christian home. The reality of the matter is my mom and my dad were baby Christians when I was a baby Christian. They were baby Christians when I was a teenager growing up. And so there wasn't this, you know, steady Christian home that a lot of people have. We didn't really have that yet. But I'm so thankful that once upon a time there was a lady, a lady that reached out to a lady, my mom, and invite her to her to, her, to her to a Bible study. Someday I'll meet her in heaven. My mom can't even remember her name. She can't even remember her name. But she lived in a little town of Oakland, Nebraska. And she invited a lady to a Bible study. That lady got saved. And there will be hundreds of people in heaven. Because of that one lady. Because of that one lady. And so that's part of my testimony. I'll share more about how God then did a work in my life and called me to ministry and those kinds of things. But I just want to share that and, and encourage you with that too. Because there might be somebody in your community, there might be somebody in your life whose life is as messed up as the Odell family life was. And you may be thinking that they would never respond to a Bible study invitation and you don't know what God might do through you because you invite them to a Bible study or you share your testimony or you share the gospel with them and look at the eternal gospel ripple effect that you could have by doing that simple thing.
Take your Bibles tonight. Let's go to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. My testimony really doesn't fit with what I'm preaching tonight, but I wanted to give you a little bit of just a glimpse of what God did in my life to then save me as a result of saving my mom and eventually saving my dad and that wonderful gospel ministry that's entrusted to us. And I I would love to hear some of your salvation testimonies as well, what God did in your life uh, to bring you to faith in, in Christ as well. I've entitled tonight's message and fitting with writing for the brand theme, I've entitled tonight's message, The Distinctiveness of the Brand. The distinctiveness of the brand in the world, but not of the world. And you understand brands, brands mean something, you know, when it comes to livestock, uh, a livestock brand, again, communicates ownership. And, and so if you were to see a brand like these on the screen, uh, on an animal or an animal being branded, it was, it was a way for, it is a way, this is still done, being done today, it is a way for the owner of that, you know, steer or heifer or whatever it might be, uh, to be identified. And here are just examples of distinct kinds of brands that, that typically they make them so that somebody else can't change it slightly and put theirs over the top of, uh, so that it is, it is definitely distinguishable. Now, We use, again, like I said yesterday, we use brands in different ways. In the retail world, we use brands to communicate identity. We use brands to uh, uh, communicate value. We use brands to even uh, seek loyalty. Some of you are loyal to specific brands, right? In in other words, there are things that you buy because it's that brand, and and maybe you've had an experience. I remember my dad hating Fords, all right, growing up, and he he had owned two of them, and both of them, the engines blew up. And, and, and or consumed large quantities of oil. And so he was, and plus he was kind of a shade tree mechanic kind of guy. And he said the engineers at Ford just made, wanted to make life difficult for engineer, or for mechanics. And so he hated Fords, all right? And some of you are loyal to Fords. I'm sorry if you're, if, I'm, I'm not sorry, okay? I own a Ford, all right? So obviously my dad's influence on me was not that great when it came to vehicles, but you understand what I mean by that. Or shoes, you know, some of you are all about Nikes, some of you are all about Adidas, some of you are all about, hey dudes, right? Or something else like that. And there's just this, this brand loyalty and probably it comes with some kind of, of experience or some kind of reason where once upon a time you had a bad experience with that brand or, or, or maybe it's just, I'm cheap so I get whatever, right? And that's part of what retail brands, branding is all about too. There's this whole idea in, in retail and in marketing of the difference between branding and a commodity. And, and what, that, what they mean by that is that there are certain things that, that are a commodity and you don't have to put a tag on it. You can get just like the bottom dollar for it. And then there are other things that once you put a brand on it, all of a sudden it may not be any higher quality than the one that's just a commodity, but because you put a brand on it, all of a sudden you can ask 10 times as much, 20 times as much money for it because it has that brand on it. Ladies, are you familiar with purses like that? Right? Just because they stamp whatever on that purse, all of a sudden it becomes so much more valuable. Is it really? Ruth, is it really? No, okay, good. I got one lady to vote on my side in relationship to that, right? And so that idea of, of, of brandedness also then communicates it with it a distinctiveness. What is it about this that is special? Whether it is a brand on a car or a vehicle or a brand on, a, on tennis shoes, Ford, Ford versus Chevy or Nike versus Adidas, what is it that distinguishes it? 
And so tonight I want to look at this idea of the distinctiveness of the brand and what it then means to be in the world but not of the world. You've heard that kind of phrase before, but I would ask you tonight, what does that mean? What is it that distinguishes us as followers of Jesus Christ that would, that would make us in the world but not of the world? And so John chapter 17, Jesus mentions that phrase a number of times here in John chapter 17, and then in doing so, he's actually praying for his followers and teaching us eventually, as we study it together tonight, what, what that phrase, what the idea of that phrase is, to be in the world, but not to be of the world. Let me just give you a quick overview of the context, because I like to make sure as we study scriptures together, we understand the context. The, 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 the chapter that we're going to look at here, and we won't look at the entire chapter, John chapter 17, in a very real sense, people have described it as the real Lord's Prayer. We have a tendency to think our Father in heaven, which pastor did a great job of teaching on is the Lord's prayer. In a sense, that was the disciples' prayer as he, as he made reference to the fact that that was Jesus teaching us how to pray. This is the Lord's prayer in the sense of this is Jesus' prayer. In other words, this is an intimate time of Jesus talking to his Father, and it's set in the, in the context of what is referred to in Scripture as the upper room discourse. It is the night of Jesus celebrating the Passover with his disciples, Jesus washing their feet. It is the night of of his betrayal. It's the night of, of him praying in the garden of Gethsemane. And so in that context, we get this glimpse into the prayer life of Jesus Christ. It represents Jesus' communion with the Father before his betrayal, before the crucifixion. And it's really a, a glorious glimpse into the Holy of Holies because it's God the Son communing with God the Father and as you read through John chapter 17 and you see the divisions of how Jesus prays, he prays for himself in the first five verses, and then he prays for his disciples in verses 6 through 19, and then he prays for future believers in verses 20 through 27. And this, this prayer is packed with amazing truth. As a matter of fact, the entire books have been written just on John chapter 17. The, the most favored text of Puritan preachers was John 17. And so entire sermon series have been preached on this one chapter of Scripture. So we're going to jump in, though, into the middle of that text tonight to think about the distinctiveness of the brand and what it means to be in the world but not of the world because that's how Jesus prayed for you and that's how Jesus prayed for me as he spent this holy time with God the Father. And as I read the text tonight, I want to invite you to notice some things, Okay. So as I'm reading aloud and you have your Bible or your device there open in front of you, I want you to watch for the word world. And then English class, I want you to watch for prepositions. And then some of you are going, ugh. Right? I want you to specifically watch for the preposition in and the preposition of. All right? So notice the, the word world and notice the prepositions in and the prepositions of. And as you're looking for those things, don't lose track of the fact that we're listening in as Jesus prays to his Father. Let's read the text beginning in verse 1 of John 17. I won't read the entire chapter. I'll read through verse 19. John 17 verse 1 says this. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, 
that your son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father... Glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and now, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given to me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. By your truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they may also be sanctified by the truth. Now, I didn't expect you to count every single example or or instance of the world, but I'm guessing some of you did. If If I count correctly... The, the word world is used there approximately 13 times. And there are repeated examples of the, the phrase in the world and of the world or not in the world and not of the world. You find that in verse 11, verse 12, verse 13, verse 14, and then verses, verse 15, out of the world, and then verse 18, into the world. And so I think it's important for us at the beginning of a message about the world for us to just take a moment here and define what is Jesus talking about? Because the world is used in different ways in Scripture, okay? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so it's used in that way, but it's also used in a different way. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so there's a distinction based on context as to what Jesus is speaking of when he speaks of the world The world that Jesus is speaking of when he says that they're in the world but not of the world is this. And this is a super loaded definition. And the super loaded definition is this. The world is the organized system of our present day that is controlled by Satan and antagonistic toward God 
And then what it does, the world entices, entices us to, to gratify self rather than to glorify God, attempting to reshape our beliefs, morals, and values. That is a packed definition based on a lot of study. It's actually based on six different messages or lessons that, that, I, that I developed in, in studying throughout the New Testament, very specifically, the uses of the world. There are two primary Greek words, the word aeon and the word cosmos. They, 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 they and all the scriptures that then describe those really go into this definition. So that's a super loaded definition. Uh, if you can come up to me tonight having memorized it, I will buy you a slushie, okay? Um, but I hope that, but I hope that uh, that helps you. And then if you want to take a picture for us to then move on to the next thing, the next thing I want to make sure we understand then is this. Um, worldliness then is this. Worldliness is living and, or loving and living for the world or this evil temporal world and its beliefs, values, pursuits, and morals rather than loving and living for the Lord. And again, that is a loaded statement. And it may in some ways be a little bit different than our overly simplified concept sometimes that we have as independent Baptists or fundamental Baptists about worldliness because there's a tendency for us to sometimes focus simply, as I said last night, on the externals when in reality, worldliness is primarily first and foremost a matter of the heart. First and foremost, it's a matter of what you love. Now that may get expressed externally, but it always starts in the heart. So worldliness is loving and living for this evil temporal world and its beliefs, its values, pursuits, and morals, rather than loving and living for the Lord. So I hope that's helpful to you tonight as we then launch into this idea of what does it mean to be in the world, but not of the world. And I believe Jesus teaches here six traits or six distinctives of what it means to be in the world and not of the world. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word and the opportunity to study it tonight. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to understand what the scriptures teach and that your spirit would guide our hearts and our minds and that you would help us to be attentive to what you want to teach us. I know it's been a full day and there may be tiredness already in terms of all that, all that we've enjoyed. May that not be a distraction from our hunger and thirst for righteousness and, and our desire to learn from your word so that we might be both hearers and doers of the same. For your glory as you seek to shape and mold us into the image of your son through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the big idea of this text is simply this, that the Lord wants us to be in the world. He wants us to be in the world. Sometimes I think we miss that, but he wants us to not be of the world. He wants us to be in the world, but not of the world. What does that look like then? What are the six traits, the six distinctives that Jesus teaches? First of all, he teaches us that someone who is in the world, but not of the world, finds real joy in their relationship with him. There is someone who finds their joy in Jesus Christ. Notice the way verse 13 states that and describing that. Again, Jesus is praying, and as he's praying, he says this, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy, that's referring to believers, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus is praying that we would find, if we can define joy in this way, that we can find a, a sense of delighted satisfaction in him. 
That's one, at least, definition of joy. It's this delight. It's this satisfaction in, in, in Jesus Christ. And the way he describes it is very significant because he uses the word fulfilled here. And that, that, the very idea of fulfilled is to fill to the full. It, it's the concept of something being overflowing. So not just a little bit of joy that just kind of fills the bottom of the, of the glass, so to speak, but a, a joy that would overflow the glass of a person's life. And so their joy, their satisfaction is found in Jesus. Because you understand that we live for what we think will make us happy, right? I mean, that's happening all around the world in the, in the world today, but it's also happening in our lives today. The things that you think will make you happy are the things that you invest your time in, pro or con, good or bad, or whatever the case may be, whether it is a hobby or it is your, your job or it is your kids or it is your relationship or your relationship with God, we live for what we think will make us happy. And so to, to live to please the Lord or to find happiness in the pleasures of the world says everything about your opinion of the Lord. Did you catch that? To live to please the world or to find happiness in the pleasures of the world says everything about your opinion of the Lord. Or maybe another way to put it is this. Worldliness is a statement of one's real opinion of the Lord. What does God really mean to you? He wants to give you his joy. And who can offer you more than Jesus Christ? Right? I mean, what does this world have to offer in comparison to the, to the creator and the sustainer of the universe? And yet so many people trade the pittance of pseudo-happiness that this world offers in exchange for the riches of the joy of Christ. Think about it this way. If I came up to you tonight and offered you $100,000, completely theoretical, all right? I'm not offering you $100,000. But if I came up to you tonight and offered you $100,000 or, option A, $100,000 right now, or option B, if I offered you a dollar a day, and then I doubled that every day for 21 days, which one would you take? $100,000 right now or a dollar a day doubled for 21 days. Which, which, who, want, who wants the $100,000? Wow, you guys are smart. Somebody wants it right now because I might die on day two, right? Exactly. I might skip country, right? All right, there's one like realist in the crowd. All right. What's that? Maybe the rapture will happen. Okay, there's a more spiritual person right there. The rapture is going to happen, so since the rapture is going to happen, so most of you, though, opted for number two. Why? Because you know what that means, right? You know how multiplication works, right? And so if you went for the dollar a day multiplied every day, do you know what I would have to give you just on the 21st day? Just on the 21st day, that day alone, I'd have to give you $1,048,576 just on that 21st day. And the grand total of all that I would give you over the course of 21 days would add up to $2,097,151. So there's a reason why you opted for number two. And yet, you know what? A lot of Christians live like this world and what it can offer them is significant and will bring real joy and will bring real happiness. And I'm here to tell you tonight that is a pittance compared to the joy you can find in Jesus Christ. Don't settle for the 100,000 now 
when you can have over 2 million, not, I'm not talking financially now, okay, metaphorically, where you can have the riches of the joy of Jesus Christ if you live a life for him instead of a life for the world around us. A person who's in the world and not of the world finds real joy in their relationship with Jesus Christ. You won't find real joy in this world's pleasures, this world's possessions, or this world's popularity. Real joy is found in Jesus. Secondly, the second way that Jesus then prays and describes what it means to be in the world but not of the world is someone who's in the world but not of the world accepts the fact that the world hates them. Notice how Jesus prays here in verse 14. He says this, I have given them your world, your word, excuse me, your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. This was not the first time that Jesus had said this to his disciples. John 15, Jesus is instructing his disciples and in verses 18 through 20 of John 15, he says this, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would not, or the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. And so Jesus had already primed the pump, so to speak, by explaining to them that because they were distinct, because they were different, because they were not of the world, because they were his disciples and distinct from the world, that the world would hate them. But by the way, this is a whole nother probably series of messages, but I just want to pause for a second in light of the, in light of the definition I gave you to make sure you understand that the concept of the world is not precisely synonymous or exactly synonymous with a country or a culture, specifically contemporary culture. Let, let that soak in a little bit because I, I think our tendency is this. Our tendency is, is to think of all things that are contemporary in nature as being automatically worldly. If it's new... It must be wrong, right? I mean, there's, that, there's this kind of that, that human nature and relationship. But just because something is new or contemporary does not automatically make it worldly. And part of what we have to ask ourselves as Bible-believing Christians is, when I see or hear or, or watch or, or something happens that's new, maybe even within the context of Christianity, it, it, does it offend my biblical sensitivity, my spiritual sensitivity, or does it offend my cultural sensitivities? In other words, what I've become accustomed to being normal, right, good, and then because it's what we do in a Baptist church, it's, it's, it's good. Or if it's something we don't do in a Baptist church, therefore it must be evil. I remember, sorry Andy, but like 20 years ago, I was a men's retreat at IRBC where somebody led music just like you're leading music and there was a massive uproar because somebody stood at a keyboard and sang into a microphone. <laughs> because godly people only go like this when they lead worship. I'm not kidding, folks. That was about 20 years ago, and it happened right here. And there were all kinds of people all worked up because that was new. That was different. And there's some secular guy that uses a keyboard and a microphone. <sighs> Automatically ungodly, wicked, evil, shouldn't ever happen. 
type of mindset, instead of thinking through, do I not, do I not accept it because I'm not used to it? Or do I not accept it because there's something biblically wrong with it? And so one of the challenges that we have as Christians is to discern what is happening around us through the lens of Scripture instead of the lens of experience and the lens of even our Baptist subculture. It's the Word of God that teaches us what is right and wrong, not our cultural sensitivities because our, our, our tendency, our human propensity is... Reject what is new must be bad. Accept what is old must be good. That's our tendency. Now, I know some of you are wired differently than that. You love all things new. But probably most of us, especially in our Baptist subculture, that's the way we roll. And so what that means is this. Not every culture is, is the same level of worldliness as every other culture and or subculture. So while every culture is worldly to some degree, some cultures are more worldly than others. In other words, there are degrees of worldliness. The more a culture or a society departs from God and the Bible, the more worldly it becomes. And this will make sense, this whole, why this, I fit this in in relationship to hatred here in a few minutes. So as a, as a society becomes more worldly and less biblical or farther away from scriptural truth, as society, de society departs from God and the Bible, the more worldly it becomes. And then as a result of that, the more worldly a society becomes, the more it hates Christians. Hates Christians. And the reason that we have not suffered much hatred in, in terms of persecution in the United States of America is because for generations, the majority of people in America have espoused some kind of Christian values. I'm not sure you can make a case fully that we were a quote-unquote Christian nation, okay? But, but I think you can make a case that, that the majority of Americans for quite some time at least espoused some kind of Christian morals. And as a result of that, there wasn't nearly as much hatred or at least external animosity for Christianity as is the case all over the rest of the world today. But what is happening in America, right? Is America becoming less or more worldly? It's becoming more worldly. And as a result of America becoming more worldly, what's happening in relationship to Christianity? It's becoming more obvious and more overt and less covert in terms of outward expressions of hatred for Christianity and what we believe to be true and godly and righteous and right. And so one of the things that we have to be prepared for, especially as things get worse in America, is that there's going to be even more hatred for you and for me as a follower of Jesus Christ. Whether overtly or covertly, the world hates believers. About a year ago, I finished the book by Erwin Lutzer entitled, We Will Not Be Silenced. How many of you have read that? Man, if you haven't read We Will Not Be Silenced, you need to read it. It will get you a little stirred up, so don't read it right before you go to bed. Because what Erwin Lutzer does, and anytime Erwin Lutzer writes a book, you need to buy it, okay? I mean, just, he's just an, an amazing thinker who sees the world and life through the lens of Scripture, and he's just so brilliant at how he explains things and his research. It's all, it's all amazing. So we will not be silenced. The, the point of that book is it's what the seculars, uh, secularists 
agenda is for the United States of America. And it's all based on research. He, he, everything he says in the book is based on research. And basically, he makes this case for you and I are in the bullseye. And Christianity is in the bullseye. Because, and he uses the word secularist instead of left or right because he knows that's politically charged. And so, yes, seculars tend to be left-wing, but he, he kind of explains why he doesn't use that term. He uses the word secularist. And really, they're all Christ rejectors, and they're all you know, in opposition to genuine biblical Christianity, and he makes the case for what's ahead. And if what he says is true, then we are going to find out the hard way how, just how much the world really hates us. And, 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 and I would guess that you're probably like me uh, in that I don't like it when people hate me. Right? I mean, there may be a few folks in here that like to just march to the beat of their own drummer, like, I like it when people hate me, type of thing. But I'm guessing that you don't like it when people hate you. As a matter of fact, that was probably the biggest turning point in my Christian life as a teenager. When I came to realize that, that I, I couldn't be cool in a public school and follow the crowd. The only, the, uh, and, and be a Christian, excuse me. I couldn't, I couldn't be a Christian and, be, and, and, and follow the crowd and be cool. I had to make a choice, in other words, between living godly for Christ or trying to fit in with the cool crowd. And as a result of that, some people didn't like me. And I had to make that choice. And maybe for some here tonight, you're still struggling with that choice of whether or not you're willing to let people hate you because you love Jesus Christ. And that's part of what it means to be in the world, but not of the world. The only way you are ever really going to live for the Lord in the context of where you intersect with the world is if you once and for all determine, I accept that some of them will hate me. Did you catch that? The only way that you are ever really going to live for the Lord in the context where you intersect with the world is if you once and for all determine, I accept that some of them will hate me. That may be for some of the teenagers in here, young people in here, that may be in a, in a public school where you just have to decide, you know what, I'm going to be in the world, but I'm not going to be of the world, and some of them are going to hate me for it, but that's okay because I love Jesus Christ and I want to please him. For others, that may be in the work context for you as adults, where maybe you've kind of tried to lay low and uh, stay undercover as a Christian, and you realize that if you're really going to live for Christ, you can't, you can't allow someone else's animosity toward you and your Christianity to keep you from doing the right thing. It may be in the context of your family that are unbelievers, where you just have to realize there may be some in my own family that hate me because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. The only way you're going to really live for the Lord is in those kinds of contexts. You accept the fact that the world hates you. Have you accepted that fact? And are you willing to take that stand? Thirdly, to be in the world but not of the world means to also recognize the spiritual warfare that is raging within them. Someone, someone that does this recognizes the spiritual warfare that is raging, and I would put it this way, within them and around them. Spiritual warfare that's raging within them, within our very hearts and souls, as well as spiritual warfare that's raging around us. Notice the way Jesus puts it. In verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. That's spiritual warfare. And I think it's important for us to note that Jesus never prays for us. He never asked the Father to take us out of the world. Now, we all look forward to the day when Christ raptures us, right? And so we want to leave this world, and we look forward to that. But Jesus here, in this case at least, does not pray 
in, in this context does not pray for that. He instead prays for God to keep us or to protect us from the evil one. I don't know about you, but sometimes that's kind of hard for me to accept that we can't just get out of here. You know, I mean, and we can get out of here. It's called the rapture. It's called death. I get that. But, but there is something in, in me uh, where there's part of me that I, I just wouldn't mind living completely in the middle of nowhere. You know, our, our, our daughter and our son-in-law live in Alaska. And some of you are watching some of those shows on TV about the middle of nowhere, Alaska. And I have to admit, there's, some, there's a certain level of appeal to just like go off the grid and go out in the middle. Now, I wouldn't necessarily choose Alaska because it's crazy cold, all right? But there are middle of nowhere places in the lower 48 that maybe aren't quite as remote as Alaska. You know, maybe not quite, quite as cold though either. But I, I, I honestly, that appeals to me a little bit. To just get away from all people, to get away from all civilization, to just not be in the world. But that's not what Jesus prays for. He says, Lord, I don't pray you take them out of the world. I pray instead that you would protect them from the evil one, the devil. You see, the devil and his minions are in constant pursuit of the souls of mankind. You know, 1 Peter 5, 8, what does the devil do? He walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's right. The devil and the demons, his minions are in the business of destroying lives. And since the devil and his minions can't pluck us out of heaven or pluck us out of Jesus' hand as blood-bought children of God that are eternally secure, what is he in the habit of doing? He wants to then instead, if he can't do that, he wants to neutralize us so that we are of no eternal value and have no eternal impact on the world around us. That's what the devil wants to do. So how does he do that? Well, he does that by causing or, or enticing Christians to live lives for the world because a worldly believer has no eternal impact on the souls of those around him or her. Take some time, some time, and study the life of Lot. If there is a case study in the Word of God for a worldly believer that had no eternal impact on the world around him, it's Lot. The New Testament describes him as a righteous man, so he was a believer. Peter makes that clear. And yet as you work your way through the life of Lot, as you see him introduced in, 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 in chapter 13 in terms of that, that conversation between his uncle Abraham and who's going to go which direction, we've got too much livestock. Where do, what, is, what does Lot choose? He chooses the well-watered plains of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And you have him then camping toward Sodom and, and near Sodom and Gomorrah, kind of cozying up. And we know what, how the Bible describes Sodom and Gomorrah, right, in terms of the godliness of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then you have the, the downward spiral toward the world because then in, by the time you come back to Lot in, in chapter 19, he's not just camping outside of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. Where is he? He's in the gate. And culturally what that meant is he had gotten to the point of being a, a judge or a, a city alderman or a person of significance within the city, which we imply, and I think it's a correct implication, that he had compromised his values enough at least to have unrighteous, ungodly, a, a city that, that every adult male was, was committing homosexuality in. That, that kind of a city, and he's sitting in the gate, so he has compromised his values in order for him to continue to be wealthy and influential, and he's in the gate, and then you have the whole account of the angels coming, right? 
And, and, and his, his sons-in-law laughing at him. They think he's crazy because he's telling them they need to get out. And, and so he gets out with his two daughters and his wife. And what happens to his wife? She looks back longingly for the, for the, for the wealth and ungodliness of the, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And she's turned into a pillar of salt. And he ends up alone with his two daughters. And what happens in the rest of the story is horrible. They commit incest with him. And Lot has so, or excuse me, Sodom and Gomorrah has so permeated the morality of his own daughters that they get him drunk and sleep with him so they could have children by him. And, and it's interesting because the, the New Testament con- commentary on that that's found in 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8 is that, that it vexed his righteous soul. A statement of his frustration over the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet despite that frustration... He kept taking steps of compromise with the world, step after step after step after step of compromise with the world. How many souls did Lot take to heaven with him? Probably none. Probably none. Because of his compromise. And that's exactly what the devil wants to do with us. He wants us to compromise our morals, compromise our lifestyles, compromise our values. Because that neutralizes us in the spiritual warfare that is raging around us. A spiritual warfare is raging all around us, and so much of the time I think we're oblivious to it. I think it was Warren Wiersbe who popularized this statement that others have used. At least he, he wrote it in some of his books. The Christian life is a battleground, not a playground. The Christian life is a battleground not a playground. How you live your life is part of a bigger spiritual war. What you love is a spiritual war. What you live for is a spiritual war. How you spend your time is a spiritual war, is part of a spiritual war. How you live in terms of who you live to impress or, or who you live to in, 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 in please is a battle. What you read, what you listen to or watch is also part of a spiritual war, a battle. Who you emulate is a battle. The decisions that are potentially small compromises in the wrong direction are a part of the battle. Your testimony is a part of the battle. Your witness is a part of the battle. It's all a bigger battle for souls and a battle for eternity. Recognize that you are in a battle. Armor up and stop living your Christian life like it's just a playground. Because what do you do on a playground? Have fun. And a lot of Christians are in this life with one primary pursuit. Just have fun. And when life isn't fun or easy anymore, They compromise. Live life as someone who realizes the significance of that. Fourthly, and and I know my time is almost up or pretty much up, so let me just quickly give these to you. Fourthly, someone who lives in the world but not of the world identifies gladly with Jesus. Identifies gladly with Jesus. Notice what it says in verse 16. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. This is repeated from verse 14. What's the significance of the statement that Jesus makes it twice? It's because we are not of the world. We are different. We are distinct. And so our identification is with Jesus, not the things of this world. And if there was anybody that, had, that the world had no draw to, that no appeal to, it was Jesus Christ. It was Jesus Christ. Everybody ought to know you're a Christian is the idea of what's being taught here. 
Everybody ought to know that you are a Christian. I remember when I was a youth pastor, you could kind of tell which kids in the youth group had a good testimony in the public school uh, in terms of standing up and, and people knew they were a Christian and which ones didn't. By when you went to the public school events, the kids that came over and talked to you versus the kids that ran the other way. Seriously, that's what I had happen as a youth pastor. Kids that would come talk to me and other kids like, oh, oh, people will know I'm a Christian if, they, if I identify with the youth pastor, I'm out of here. And so everybody ought to know you're a Christian. Fifthly, distinguishes themselves from the world through the word. Verses 17 and 19, Jesus says something very significant when he says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And we, we unpacked this a little bit last night. The idea of sanctify is to set apart, to make it holy from sin to service. That was the toothbrush idea that I illustrated for you. God calls us to, to, to separation. He calls us to distinction. And it is, it is obedience to the word of God that sets us apart. Don't miss that. It is obedience to the word of God. Jesus said, it's, it's your word. Sanctify them, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The power of a Christian testimony is not in how like the world you are, but in how distinct from the world you are. How different from the world you are. And it's the Bible that makes us different. It's not our ideas of a Baptist subculture that make us different. It's the Bible. And I love the way somebody illustrates this, that we're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. It's kind of like a boat. Where is a boat supposed to be? It's supposed to be in the water. But what happens when there's water in the boat? <laughs> That's a bad thing, right? The boat in the water is a good thing. You get to go fishing. The boat, the, the boat in the water is a good thing. You get to go water skiing or tubing or cruising in, in the evening here at Iowa Regular Baptist Camp. That's a good thing. But it's when there's water in the boat that there's a problem. And what sets us apart is obedience to the word of God. And so I don't have time again to, to unpack this tonight. But think about the commands in Scripture in the New Testament that ought to set us apart as Christians, some of the things that Jesus said or the epistles say, like Jesus said in John 13, 34 and 35, what is it, by what is it that Christ, people will know that you're my disciples? If you have love for one another. And then let me just ask you, during COVID, how many Christian churches didn't love each other? Unfortunately, I've heard testimony after testimony after testimony of, of, of Baptist churches where there were a whole lot of people that showed a whole, not, not a whole lot of love for each other because of differing opinions and lack of love, flat out. And that's a poor testimony for Jesus Christ. Love for one another ought to distinguish us. Let me just give you quickly the way we speak. Ephesians chapter 4 ought to distinguish us and that ought to attract people to Christ. Thirdly, exemplifying sexual holiness. First Thessalonians chapter 4, 3 through 7 even talks of that in terms of your sanctification. Sexual holiness. A life of integrity. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 7. The concept of being a person of integrity. When you say you're going to do something, you do that. You can be counted on to do the right thing. You live a life of integrity. I mentioned earlier my grandfather who was an unbeliever. He went to the grave as an unbeliever, despite my efforts to lead him to Christ, time after time after time after time. And part of his problem was simply this. It was simply that he had interacted with so many Christians that lacked integrity. They would say one thing and do something altogether different that would lie to his face in business, cheat him out of a dollar, 
and do all kinds of other things that Christians shouldn't do. And he went to his grave pointing the finger at hypocritical Christians. Now, was, was all that rooted and based in 100% truth? Maybe not. Maybe his own bias. But God forbid that there be anybody that pointed our lives and say hypocrite because we haven't been people of integrity. What distinguishes us as holy people of God is obedience to the word of God. Distinguishes themselves, someone who lives in the world but not of the world, distinguishes themselves from the world through the word and then finally, and I'll wrap up, someone like that also sees their purpose for being in the world as being sent by the Lord. Look at verse 18 as I complete our, our time together tonight. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Why was Jesus sent into the world? He came to what? He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He gave to give his life a ransom for many. And so the idea of Christian separation is not isolation. It's not getting as, as far as possible away from the world because if you're as far away as possible from the world, what impact are you having on the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ? Just to wrap that up, that thought up, let me just say this. A Christian who rarely witnesses is just a different kind of worldly. A Christian who rarely witnesses is just a, a different kind of worldly. Perhaps they're too concerned about what other people think. Perhaps they're too wrapped up in the cares of this world. Perhaps they're too fearful. But Jesus said, I'm leaving you in the world for this purpose. And so to be in the world and not of the world is to see your purpose for being in the world as being sent by the Lord to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that how you're living your life? Let's answer the question, so what, tonight? So what? I'm putting it in terms of questions this evening. Number one, where are you trying to find happiness? Where are you trying to find that joy that only Jesus can provide? Number two, have you accepted the fact that the world hates you? Are you still struggling with that? Accept the fact that if you live a consistent Christian life, the world will hate, will hate you. Number three, do you face each day ready for battle? We're hoping for fun. Is your Christian life or your view of the Christian life a playground or a battleground? Number four, does everyone know that you are a believer? Have you clearly taken that stand in your workplace? Have you clearly taken that stand in your neighborhood? Have you clearly taken that stand with your family? They know you're a Christian. Number five, is it obedience to God's word that distinguishes you as a believer or some other contrived version of what you think a Christian should look like? And finally, are you living like you are sent? Because Jesus left you here for that purpose. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word tonight. I pray that you would use it in our hearts. We're grateful for this prayer of the Lord Jesus, that he prayed for us, that we would be in this world, but not of it. May that be true of our lives and testimonies. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.